Hello and welcome to another episode of the Endeavor Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Breitkopf, and once again with me is my frequent co-host and uh, guest, depending on how we're doing it, uh, Christy Davin. How are you doing, Christy? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, so I, I think we've got a great topic today. Um, recently, you came across an article that you shared with me, which is, which was from a U.S. News & World Report. It's a, from about four or five years ago, uh, but it's, you know, those things, the internet is forever, so it was rolling around. You shared it with me, and I loved it. It was uh, how to get accepted into college with a low GPA. And I wanted to talk about that because, um, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, my GPA in high school was not as high as I would have liked or would have hoped to, to have had, uh, mostly because of a really uh, difficult freshman year uh, where combined with uh, my father's illness that I was in the hospital a lot visiting with him and that uh, for several months uh, I had a really rough transition from middle school to high school. So my GPA when I was applying to colleges as a senior uh, was lower than I wanted mostly because of a really rough freshman year. But uh, I think what we could talk about more than just what horror stories we have from our past is kind of talk about some ways to improve your chances of getting into uh, a college, a college of your choice even, uh, even if you have a GPA that's lower than uh, what you're capable of getting and uh, what most colleges want to see. So the first thing, I think there was something we were talking about just before we started recording, uh, one of the main tips uh, that you have that uh, this article talks about as well. Uh, why don't you talk? tell me about that? What is that big tip that you had? Sure. Well, it's something that to me uh, I, I'm very passionate about in almost all aspects of life, which is accountability. Um, whether in my professional life or as a parent, um, I believe strongly that people should take ownership of their actions, uh, own the good, take credit for the bad, learn from everything. And um, in this case, I think it's important because the colleges are going to notice it. They're going to see it on your transcript. That <laughs> you can't, like, you know, put a shiny sticker on it and hope that they won't notice. So, owning it, I think, is actually, first of all, a sign of maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. also, it provides the opportunity for you, especially in your essay, to provide context. Right. To say, you know, I know that they're going to notice this, so let me explain it. For you, of course, um, your father's illness was a huge factor. Um, and also your transition, and you, can, you could speak to that in your essay. Right. I think if students are able to say, um, you know, when I was a freshman, I goofed off. I didn't know what, how important it was or how hard it was going to be to be a serious student. And it right. took me a while to learn that lesson. And you'll notice in junior and senior year that I did learn that lesson, that I made progress and I, and I learned from my mistakes. Right. And two things to what you just said. Uh, how are they going to notice? They're going to notice from your transcripts. You're, you're submitting your grades. They're going to know it, what your GPA is. That's one of the first things colleges look at in the application process is your GPA. And, and to your point about the, the college essay, even if you don't want to write a college essay specifically about your failures as a student, like for me, for example, I would not have written an essay about my freshman year experience. But even acknowledging it, if you want to write about how an event in your life help you turn your life around, you can uh, place uh, academic weakness or academic failure earlier in your high school career in context of that, how that this 
moment that you're focusing on in your essay transitioned you from an unfocused youth into a more focused, more mature student ready to apply to college. So it doesn't have to be that essay doesn't have to be about your struggles academically or your lower GPA, but putting that into context can be a way to talk about it without talking about it. That's a good point. That's a good point. You don't have to, you know, take a picture of the elephant in the room without, um, you can always allude to it yeah. and provide that content and tell that story effectively so that they'll see the effects that that lesson learned had on your grades because they would go up. Yeah. And again, a lot of the essays that students write about that transitional experience or that transcendental experience is not an academic story. It's something outside of the classroom usually and that's much more active usually and something easier to write about and express in an essay so you know writing about uh, your grades freshman year is probably not the most active and interesting way to help an admissions officer get to know you but you know making that a part of your story as how you were that and now you're this because of this experience can, well, be, can be useful. And I think that's a really good point, but it falls back on something that we beat the drum on a lot, which is your personal story, your personal narrative, mm -hmm. that there's so much more to every individual besides their grades. Right. And the rest of the application is there is the student's chance to tell that story. So it doesn't all have to be about the essay, and the essay doesn't have to be a direct um, address of the grades, but um, you're right. It's, there's more to learn about you than just you know, why freshman year wasn't really stellar academically. Right. And I think that that personal narrative, which we talk about a lot in a lot of our episodes, we're going to hit that again and again today. Uh, the second thing that is an important uh, way to get colleges to get to know you despite grades that are not helpful uh, is your letters of recommendation. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, it, it depends on your school. There are many schools uh, that your guidance counselor or college counselor will write a letter of recommendation for you because the college is requested, but it's not a real personal letter. I mean, we all know that college counselors and guidance counselors uh, have workloads that are Herculean, uh, just so immense, and, and the number of students that they have to work with is astronomical. So they're not able to get to know each student individually and often the letters they write for their letters of recommendation are more about placing your grades in context of the school what the school's philosophy is what your classes were like what that school's culture is like and how you fit into that and so it's a little less personal and a little more general so it's not that letter of recommendation I'm referring to that type of it's the letter of recommendation where you get to choose for example a teacher recommendation right or a coach somebody like yeah. that somebody who knows you more personally and can speak to again that transition or that evolution um, the level of maturity gained or whatever that progress was over those years to again provide some context and some some personal um, some personal detail so that the college can get to know you better. Right. And, and the big thing to remember is when you're applying to colleges and universities, some schools really are strict about the number of letters of recommendation you can submit. Many schools limit you to two, one from a teacher and one from your guidance counselor or college counselor. And it's really the one from the teacher where you get to choose who is going to write that letter. 
what relationship you have with that teacher is incredibly important. Is that teacher someone who you know well? I mean, picking a teacher to write a letter of recommendation just because they gave you an A may not be the wisest course. Maybe you did great in that class, you did all the work, you got that A, and you didn't have a lot of interaction with the teacher. You were observing the lessons and you were learning from that teacher and you have a strong feeling, but maybe the teacher doesn't know you that well. Maybe it's the class where you had to really work hard and struggle and, 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 and just fight for every grade and you worked a lot with that teacher after school help, conferences, meetings, the teacher who got to know you even though you didn't get an A, might be the better choice and probably is. Yeah, because again, it's that personal perspective that shows um, the the hard work that you put in to get what you got. Because sometimes it's not about the easy A. Sometimes it's about that really, really well-deserved and hard-fought-for C+. Right. And I agree with you completely that if you can submit more than two letters of recommendation, going outside of the academic realm for that third recommendation, going to a coach or going to someone outside of school like the boss at a job that you've had as a high school student for the last two or three years. Uh, if you are a particularly religious person or heavily involved in your religious community, regardless of how religious you are, a religious leader with whom you have a strong relationship. The most important factor for me is not what job or position that recommender has or who that recommender is, except for, of course, don't choose a family member, uh, but that they have a strong personal connection to you and they know you individually. Absolutely. Um, and that's a really good point that you're not supposed to um, choose a family member. You know, your favorite uncle is probably not the best um, person to choose for that so important piece of your story. And um, some colleges even or universities even flat out say you can't pick someone who is related to you. And that's tough for some folks, uh, high school students who uh, work in a family business. Mm -hmm. You know, the family owns a restaurant and you've, as a, you've worked there since you were a, a kid. The family owns a construction company. If you worked in the office since you were a kid, I have met so many students who have those stories. Sure, they've had a job the last three or four years of high school. They've worked in the family restaurant. They've worked in the family construction company. They've worked in the family landscaping company. I hear those stories all the time from students. And that really limits where they can get a letter of recommendation from because they don't have that outside resource who's not a family member. Sure, sure, yeah, that is a challenge. So um, the other things, if, if you're ready to go back to our primary point, which yeah. is, because um, I love the letters of recommendation thing and maybe we can do more podcasts on that mm -hmm. um, down the line, but I wanna get back to our primary point, which is, so what happens if your grades aren't that great? The letters of recommendation are important, owning it and providing some context is important. Mm -hmm. Um, what what else do you recommend? I mean, I know that for, for some students, we've watched them um, apply to some colleges that may be a stretch, but also something like a community college where they know that, worst case scenario, they can go to college there, bring their grades up, and maybe transfer right. once they've proven themselves. So that's a good point. Uh, and again, I wasn't necessarily going to go right to that, but that you brought that up, so I'm going to go right there right now. All right, sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, let's talk about it. You know, oftentimes I've worked with students who um, 
you know, for whatever reason, they didn't get the grades that they thought they were going to get, whether it was something traumatic like I went through my freshman year, or it was a situation where they didn't take school as seriously at first, uh, something had to really click for them to realize that, you know, they cared about college because it was a gateway to a career or a gateway to a community or a gateway to learning something that they didn't realize they cared about. And now you're stuck senior year with a GPA that's not going to get you into the school or program that you want to get into. So maybe community college is a, a, a launching pad, a place to go for a year, maybe two, get those basic requirements out of the way and build up those grades. Build up a resume of better grades so that when you do transfer, your transcript from college looks a lot better than that transcript from high school, which you still have to submit. When you are a transfer student, whether you're transferring from a community college to a four-year school or from one four-year school to another, they don't just want the college transcripts. They still want all that same stuff that you submitted when you're applying to college in the first place. They want those test scores. They want those letters of recommendation from high school. They want those transcripts from high school. They want all that stuff plus your college stuff. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know that Dr. Wanda Montanez and I had a whole episode on uh, the community college option. So you can go back and listen to that, and I will probably remember to put a link to that episode in the show notes. But that's something I think bringing up right now is important is that if you don't get into your first choice colleges, if you don't get into the college of your choice, that's not the end of the world. There's a chance to uh, try again. And community college is a great way to build up that uh, reputation, that academic reputation, and really build up a lot of positives. I agree. Um, and I think that some families also find out that the um, sort of the unintended benefit of that as well is they're saving a couple of bucks on a community college that they can then transfer the credits over and not pay as much as if they had spent all four years at um, at a you know more traditional four-year school. Sure, and, and a lot of what we talked about in that uh, community college option episode was about cost. I mean, in our episode right now, we're talking about what happens if you, your, your low GPA is preventing you from achieving the college admissions you want. And again, that's that's one of the reasons why community college is so powerful. One of the things that I did, and I've talked a lot about where I went to school, where I went to college on the podcast. One of the things I did was I did not go straight from high school to Brandeis University. I went to a state school, a four-year school, not a community college, but I went to a state school for one year. I went to that state school for two reasons. One, I wanted to build up my grades, and uh, two, I got a full scholarship to that state school. So I basically went to school for free for one year, built up my grades and was able then to transfer uh, and I got accepted to multiple schools when I transferred and chose Brandeis again due to the financial aid that they offered. So I used that path as well in, in a way mm -hmm. and it was very successful for me. So one of the things I want to go back to is uh, other tips for how to get into schools, colleges, universities if your grades are not where you need them to be and one of those ways currently is still standardized test scores. Now, there's a lot of concern folks have about the SAT and the ACT. A lot of folks are not thrilled with it, and many schools are starting to go test optional, and there's currently one school that refuses to look at test scores, and that, may, that list of one school may grow over time. But for now, SAT and ACT scores can help you. Now, the thing is, a great SAT score, 
or a great ACT score is not going to be the one thing that gets you into college. However, think of it this way. For a lot of public universities, state schools, there's a scale. And I don't mean a scale like the scale on the SAT. I mean like imagine an old-timey scale where you put a weight on one side and you put the stuff on the other, like, they, like you sometimes see in the movies. And I'm going to use a specific example because I know it well. For my time living and working in California, I had a lot of students who were applying to the University of California system and the Cal State system. And in California, they published these uh, documents, these PDFs, that were looked kind of like a matrix. And basically what it was is, the higher your SAT scores, the lower the minimum GPA needed for admissions to a particular Cal State or UC school. So if you've got a perfect score on the SAT, you could afford a 2.7 or something. I'm just making that up because I don't remember the numbers anymore. This was 10 plus years ago. You could afford, for example, a 2.7 and apply to the UC system or the Cal State system and you could get in. Now, with a perfect SAT score and a 2.7 GPA, you'd get into one of the lower ranked, less prestigious Cal States or UC schools, but it's still you're in the system. And there's always the possibility that if you max out your grades your freshman or sophomore year, you could apply to transfer to a more prestigious, famous Cal State or UC school. Now, there's no guarantee of admissions, but you could try. And a lot of colleges and universities that are state schools, public universities, University of Massachusetts, the SUNY, State University of New York system, Penn State, the University of Ohio, Michigan State, throughout the country, have similar scales where they balance your SAT score and your grades and it, you can make up for, in some small part, weaker grades with very strong test prep scores. Now, the big caveat to this is, this is for state universities, public universities, in-state. So if you're interested in applying to UCLA and you live in Kentucky, this isn't going to help you. Well, and that's also interesting. I'm glad that you qualified that it was state schools, and I find it really interesting that they document it so transparently because you and I have talked about our personal stories before. Part of my personal story is that I didn't get into the family alma mater, and the, the letter, the very nice letter that I got from my rejection letter was very nice, but it said, because my SAT scores were good, but my GPA was mediocre, they actually translated that into um, the fact that I wasn't applying myself. And now this is Bowdoin College, this is not a state school, mm -hmm. this is a, a, a pretty competitive private school. One of the top ranked private four-year colleges in the country. Yeah. Um, so I understand now, um, given my experience um, and training since then, why that happened. But of course, when I was 18 years old, I didn't get it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me, again, it's really important to understand where you're applying and what their criteria are and right. how they weigh them. Right. And there's one other thing I want to talk about because I am talking about state schools and some places in the country, some communities, some cultural communities look down on state schools. And okay, it's a public university, it's not a private university, but at the college level, at the university level, especially here in the United States, I don't see what the difference is. I've been doing this a long time. I've been edu in education for a long time. I've been advising students in their applications to college for a long time. 
you know, UCLA, University of Michigan, uh, these are great schools. And even schools that are not quite as prestigious, you know, the, the top public universities in this country are incredibly strong and reputable. And even if you're going to one of those less prestigious public universities that I alluded to in the University of California system uh, that I talked about before, whether that's, you know, Oklahoma State or, you know, Mississippi State. I mean, there's all good schools. I can't find a bad state university, really. Um, you can get a good education anywhere. You know, I had a lot of students when I was in California who um, ended up applying to the local state college, which is uh, California State University at Northridge or CSUN. And for a lot of them, they were like, oh, I'm only applying to CSUN. That's my safety school. And I would always say, no, 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 no. CSUN is a, is a fine school. Is it as famous as UCLA? No. Or USC or Harvard or Stanford? No. It's not as famous. The name isn't as prestigious. But tell you what, I know professors at CSUN. Currently right now, I know professors at Salem State University here in Massachusetts. They're excellent. You can get a really good education anywhere. In fact, it's sometimes when you go to a smaller, less famous, less prestigious school, you're more likely to actually work with and learn from the professor. My year at Montclair State College, which is now Montclair State University in New Jersey, I took a basic science class so I could meet my science requirement, and I took a class called Oceanography because it sounded fun. It wasn't. It was <laughs> a really hard science class, really hard. But what was amazing was I went to the bookstore, I bought the book, brought it back to my dorm, and I looked. The book was written by Dr. Tharavathakal. All right. I go to class, and who's my professor? Dr. Tharavathakal. The guy who wrote the book that is used at Harvard and Stanford and the University of Chicago and all these other places in their in their basic oceanography classes, Oceanography 101. Yeah, he teaches it. He well, this was a long time ago. I, I'm sure he's retired by now because he wasn't a young guy back then. But he he was teaching at Montclair State. He wasn't teaching at Harvard or Stanford or University of Chicago. They were using his book, but he taught at Montclair State. So you can work with amazing teachers, amazing professors, and if you go to a big, fancy, famous university, if you go to MIT or Caltech or Harvard or Stanford, maybe you don't get to work with that famous professor. Maybe you're taking a class with a graduate student or a teacher assistant, and you're not working with that famous professor. So sometimes the more prestigious school doesn't give you the absolute best experience for what you're looking for. Sometimes it does. I'm just saying don't poo-poo the state university or the smaller, less famous school. There are 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. There are only, what, eight schools in the Ivy League? That sounds right to me. Yeah. And the top 50 schools in the country are all amazing. But guess what? So are the 50 schools after that, and so are the 50 schools mm -hmm. after that. There are hundreds of really good colleges and universities in this country. And with how competitive applying to colleges become, schools that didn't used to be competitive are now competitive. Yeah, the numbers are definitely changing. And um, I think that the lesson learned there, especially with that, you've told me the story about that professor at Salem State before mm -hmm. who could teach anywhere she wanted, but she right. chose to be at Salem State because she lived in Salem and didn't want to mess with the commute. Right, because um, she has younger children. Right. So the lesson learned there is do your homework. 
Mm-hmm. Find out if you are an archaeology person or an oceanography person or a poetry person. Do some research and find out where the best professors are. And chances are there will be at least a couple of those less competitive but still wonderful schools right. that can offer you direct access to some of those um, those great talents. Right. And I know when I'm hiring, because uh, I, I, I sometimes hire tutors in, part, in my job, when I'm hiring, uh, you know, if a person goes to Harvard versus a person who goes to, you know, I don't know, some less famous school. That doesn't make a difference to me. You go to college, you graduate from college, I'm impressed. It's hard. I've been there. You know, you made the commitment. You finish school. You, you, you get a master's degree. I'm impressed. Like, I, I've ne- I don't believe in all the years I've been hiring tutors off and on over the last 15 years in my various different jobs, I've ever looked at a resume and looked at what college a person went to and said, oh, that college? Ew. I'm not hiring this person. <laughs> like, I just, I, the worst that's ever happened is I, they may have attended a school I never heard of, so I looked it up. And time and time again, I'm like, great, you graduated. You put the work in. You got your degree. Well, and it's similar to when college um, admissions officers are looking at your college application. For them, context is really important. So if you didn't take any AP classes, but your high school didn't offer any AP classes, right. they understand that you did, that you did what you could with the resources provided to you. And mm-hmm. I believe that this is the same thing. If you went to Bob's College and Bob's College offered um, all sorts of accreditations or awards or extra things and you took part in all of those extra things Mm -hmm. then it shows that you did the most with the resources that you had at hand absolutely that's what's more impressive on the resume right it's not that you went to harvard and got a d it's that you went to bob's college and got all a's and you got multiple awards and Mm -hmm. you took part in all of these other organizations and and that's what's important is to do the, the best you can with what you have available and that leads back to what we've always been talking about which is about telling your story when you're in college Take advantage of the resources. Build up your story as a person who's a part of the life on campus, who's seeking out leadership positions, who's who's immersing him or herself in the life at the school. And when you're applying to graduate school or applying for jobs, that's what matters. It's not just that you were there. Exactly, exactly. If you sleep through four years of college, just like you know, some people sleep through four years of high school, uh-huh. and then they've got nothing to show on their resume. Right. Um, we have an, a candidate now who has such an empty resume that they actually put their transcript in. They just listed all of the classes that he took because mm-hmm. he um, he had nothing else to, sh- right. to show for it. So, and, and that was, and it's very telling. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we want to cover, if we have just one more minute, is yeah. what to do if, if, if you've decided to take a year. Right. Now, we've talked about the gap year before uh, in, in, on the podcast. And uh, whether it's you're looking at your GPA at the end of your junior year and you're like, oh, no, I don't have the grades. Or you're, you've applied and you haven't gotten the results you want. You want to think about... T- using time as, as as a tool for you. So if you're at the end of your junior year and you're looking at your GPA and it's not amazing, use that senior year because when you send your transcripts, they do have your your beginning of year grades on them for senior year. Use that beginning of senior year to really pump up your grades. And if you've applied to school and it's April of your senior year and you're getting results back that are not happy, maybe you take that year and and have one of those gap years. Gap years are becoming a really popular way to build up a resume and build up real life experience to supplement 
your high school career um, if you don't want to do community college that is so those are some options that are available to students. Sure, and the gap year can be anything from a from a postgrad year where you're actually taking another basically a fifth year of high school um, to internships and that the gap year programs are being embraced now. I think as people are questioning whether whether college is the right thing for them or their family can't afford it yet or um, they don't know what to study so they don't want to go until they know what they want to study. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different ways to use that year. The important part is to use it in a way that's relevant and application building instead of something that you have to explain. You know, I went to La Jolla and played the guitar for nine months. Right, um, right, right. And you don't want to be a musician. Right. Then, uh, then you, you want it to be something that augments your story. Right. Spending your busking in the Boston T or New York subway system is not a gap year. <laughs> Um, it's delightful, I'm sure, but that's not a gap year. Um, yeah. So I understand what you're saying. I agree completely. So those are uh, some ideas about how to deal with if your GPA isn't where you need it to be. And I hope that was helpful. Uh, any other final thoughts on your mind, Christy? No, I think that all in all, um, I think that students and parents need to remember that they shouldn't panic. There are lots of options. Right. And there are lots of people, even, you know, resources online, but also people that they can speak to to talk about what their options are before mm-hmm. they think that, the, you know, that the world has come to an end because they haven't met the GPA requirement for their, for their first choice school. My final thought is, is think outside the um, famous school box. You know, there are great schools out there that you might not have heard of yet. Keep your, your eyes and ears open and, and be open to finding a great school that you didn't realize was in the next state over. I'm, that's, that's just one piece of advice that I think can be really useful. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please feel free to like, favorite, star, heart, or otherwise tell everybody that you like the episode in your podcast listening app of choice. Uh, you can always share this episode, hit that share sheet and share it to Facebook or Twitter. When people listen to it on those platforms, it still counts, so we love it. And if you want to get the episodes right away, please subscribe, that way they download to your phone, iTunes, or other device as soon as we post them. We usually try to post episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays, although with the beginning of the school year, that uh, we've been really struggling with doing that over the last three weeks, but we're back on schedule, I believe, so we'll have these episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Uh, so, and if you really like the episode and you want to talk to us, the best way to do that is on our Twitter feed, at EndeavorPod. You can just hit us up there. I get a notification on my phone, and I'm immediately excited to respond to you. Uh, you can also leave a comment on iTunes, but I check that less often, so um, it's going to take me longer to get back to you. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and as always, let's keep learning. <laughs>